I'd love for you to turn in your Bible with me, if you brought it this morning, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, we'll be starting in verse 18 this morning. As you turn there, I have to ask you the question, have you uh, ever gotten an ingredient of a recipe wrong that really just kind of changed the whole thing? Uh, maybe for you, it's accidentally adding salt instead of sugar, uh, or maybe using a tablespoon instead of teaspoon. That big T is easily confused, that little T sometimes in the recipe card. Uh, my dear grandma, she passed away a number of years ago. We called her Nanny. Uh, she was a lot of things, uh, but a good cook was not one of those things. Uh, there's one particular story that's kind of become a legend in my family, one of those stories that we re- retell even though we know it just because we love it, uh, of her making muffins uh, on one occasion. And uh, my grandpa ate one and said, dear, these, there is something wrong with these muffins. And she was so offended. She got so hurt by that. Uh, my dad actually came over later that day to help them with something, and she offered him one, and he, same response, these are, mom, these are not good muffins. And so she just accused them of being ungrateful. She said, I'm going to bring them to church tomorrow. They'll love them there. And so she brought them to church, and at the end of the day, one muffin was missing. Apparently, somebody got one and like spread the word, like, stay away from Betty's muffins. You know, like it, everybody knew. And so uh, come to find out with a little investigation, instead of cooking spray, she had used bug spray uh, to grease the pan. So that will change the end result, you know. One bad ingredient can ruin the whole mix. Uh, this morning, we are uh, in a new series called Messy Church, looking at this church in Corinth. Uh, and as we, as we look, we see this church is in large part riddled with, with problems. Uh, their, their whole mix is messed up. Uh, we see in this first letter to the Corinthians, we'll, we'll come to find very shortly that they are a very messy church. If their church had a steeple on it, it would probably have been a, a little bit crooked. Uh, if you've ever heard, if you ever find the perfect church, you should probably leave so you don't want to mess it up. That, that wouldn't be the case with Corinth. They're probably the furthest you could be from perfect and maybe still be considered and called a church. And I think we even see this subtly in, in the ways that Paul uh, writes their, their introduction to this letter. Paul, in many of his letters, writes a, an element of thanksgiving or prayer or praise for this church and encouraging them. And for instance, Philippians, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion and until the day of Christ Jesus. He says to the Philippian church, like, man, you guys have been with me since the beginning, and God's going to do great things in you, and I can't wait to see it. First Thessalonians, he says, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith. Your labor prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. We have Paul's favorite trifecta, that faith, hope, and love. We see all of it present in the Thessalonian church and how they're continuing to work all of those things out. And then we get to 1 Corinthians. And he says, I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. Like, I'm glad that God has grace for you guys. Uh, I think it's interesting. He says the thing that Paul is thankful for is, is God's extra forgiveness on your part. The problems, though, are evident throughout this letter. We see divisions among their congregation, infighting and bickering. We see sexual immorality to the extent of a, a man is sleeping with his stepmom, and the people are proud about it, bragging about it. People suing their fellow believers, treating the Lord's Supper so disrespectfully, some of them being, are being struck ill or, or struck dead even. But all of these problems, I think, stem from really one bad ingredient. 
I think we see the root of the problem, the bug spray in their muffins, so to speak, was a poor view of the cross. And so as Paul begins this letter to this messy church, he does so by reminding them of God's messy solution to sin. Verse 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased with the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. I love this section of this letter because it really kind of encapsulates Paul's preaching all over the place. You know, his kind of common message of bringing the message of the cross. And to this church that is struggling to be holy, Paul encourages them with the same thing, to reflect upon the cross. He writes of Jews who would see this as a paradoxical thing, that salvation through God's military might is what they are used to, through through powerful displays. And, And Greeks who sought a reasonable path to try to earn their salvation. No, to them, to, to trust their salvation to a well-worn cross on which to them some messianic pretender, a crucified criminal died. That was absurd. You know, no thank you. Now, I understand to think of the cross in this way is in large part completely foreign to us, but it would have been an interpretation that fit right at home like a, in a place like Corinth. Corinth was not a backwoods podunk hillbilly village stuck out in the boonies. It was a major metropolitan area in the ancient world. By the time of Paul's writing, it was a half a million people, which was quite large for their time. The reason it was so large, it was kind of built in the middle of this land bridge that connected two pretty popular peninsulas and so provinces, which really just means Corinth was like a toll booth on a major highway. And as people flowed back and forth, they gained a lot of money and a, a lot of notoriety. With all of this traffic and thoroughfare and seaports, quickly became this cultural hub in Corinth. They had the latest trends and the latest fashions and the latest philosophies. I mean, they're just 50 miles from Athens, which is kind of the birthplace of philosophy. Or it began under people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle and all those dead guys you learned about in high school. And they accumulate with them not just this great wealth, but also as, as wealth poured in came this obsession with pleasure, particularly sexual pleasure, even to the extent where their religion is infiltrated with this pleasure. The highest point of their city was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love and fertility. To say in our language, we could kind of sum all of this up with what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. That was the kind of place that Paul was writing to. And so when this little Jewish man named Paul shows up, urging them to believe in the power of some other Jew who died on a cross at the hands of Rome, the message message was regarded as foolishness. I mean, what could a criminal executed by crucifixion offer to the mighty, influential, important Corinth? The message of a crucified Messiah preached by an odd little tent maker fell upon a lot of deaf ears. But even beyond this, though, some Corinthians listened. 
And some accepted and believed in this Jesus, and they believed that there was some power in the foolishness of the cross. That the cross appears so ridiculous, so foolish, so absurd, that it could be thought of none other but the true God of the universe. Paul says no wise man, no scholar, no expert in the law, no philosopher could match this messy, perfect plan. But again, for our ears, I think the question is, what makes the cross so foolish? Uh, How could anybody talk about the cross in this way? But Paul talks about two groups who see it this way, as this instrument of capital punishment. He says, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. You see, to a Jewish person, the terms Messiah and crucified were a paradox. I mean, these weren't just two puzzle pieces that wouldn't fit together. They were from completely different boxes. And as 21st century American Christians, we, we don't understand how anybody could regard the cross as foolish. I mean, we take the cross and we put it in a charm on our necklaces and we make it out of polished wood and hang it on the walls. We decorate our homes with it as wall decor. I mean, the cross is our hope for life. But in the ancient world, the cross was horrifying. A horrifying instrument of torture and death reserved for the worst kind of criminals. It'd be as if somebody was in the grocery store and you walked by them and they had a guillotine hanging from a necklace on their, a charm on their necklace. It'd be like putting an electric chair in your living room. D.A. Carson says it'd be as if someone in your church was wearing earrings of the Hiroshima cloud or a mural of Auschwitz was painted on the outside of your church. I mean, it's not just odd, it's, it's sadistic. Messiah meant power and splendor and triumph and crucifixion meant weakness and humiliation and defeat. Jews were accustomed to God's mighty hand and his outstretched arm, the the one that would deliver them from their enemies time and time again. And the thought was that when Jesus came, he would do the same, that he would bring down Rome like David brought down Goliath, that he would crush their political enemies like the Red Sea destroyed the might of Pharaoh. But rather than getting signs and power, they got Christ crucified. And it scandalized them. It was a scandal because it didn't fit their preconceived theology. It was a scandal because in their wisdom, they thought they had God's plan all figured out. It was a scandal because the kingdom of God that they had waited for for so long now included a crucified king. And that was just foolish and unattractive. To the Jews, claiming victory in the cross was crazy. And I think, if we're honest, haven't you kind of been there before? When God doesn't do what you want him to do, when rather than see power and victory in your life, you just see defeat after defeat, and if this goes on long enough and it's difficult enough, you can find yourself beginning to wonder if God really has a plan for our lives in the midst of all of it. This is where the Jews were in terms of the cross. The Greeks had a similar but different problem. It wasn't as much a theology problem as a philosophy problem for them. Because for them, looking to this path of God and enlightenment and and all of it was based on reason. And it was simply unreasonable that a God would allow himself to be murdered by his enemies. It was unreasonable that this would be the plan of, of God. That's not how a reasonable God would act. It's not how the God who makes sense ought to do things. But salvation by grace through faith stands against reason. And that's exactly the point that Paul is trying to make. And nothing about the cross seems wise. In fact, he says for those outside of it, it's, it's, it's foolish, it's absurd, it's stupid, but for those, you know, for those who are perishing, it's, it's nothing. And yet he says for those on the inside, 
It's the power of God and it's hope and it's victory. For those who are being saved, the cross is everything. You see, that is why the cross is powerful. The cross is powerful precisely because it's foolish by human standards. I mean, no one saw this coming. The cross is powerful because nothing can be or, or need be added to it. The cross is powerful because it confronts the wise and, and humbles the arrogant. The cross is powerful because it is foolish. And yet Paul continues to show one more reason why the cross is powerful. Verse 26, speaking to us now more, he says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, no one, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love what Paul says here because you read it at first and it's almost, it's almost like a little bit of a slam on the Corinthian believers. Years ago, you might have seen the movie The, the Help. And it popularized the phrase, you is kind, you is smart, you is important. Uh, that one of the nannies, Abelene Clark, would whisper to the children she cared for. And it seems like Paul has none of that for the Corinthians. Like, you is not very smart. Uh, you is not very important, and you is not from a very important, I mean, you're from regular old family backgrounds, regular old, you know, non-nobility, you're, you're from just normal people. But this is not a, a put down from Paul, but a reminder that God didn't choose them or choose us because they had all the typical hallmarks of people that the world would choose. Paul is drawing direct parallel between the cross and us as Christians, but the power of the cross aside from salvation, lies and also what it signifies for all of us. The cross, this despised, you know, this despised torture mechanism, often recycled and bloody from prisoner to prisoner, this rough piece of wood on which they would kill a criminal, that God would use that. That God would use this foolish cross for his ultimate redemptive plan and by which he would save the world. And as Christians, what Paul is saying is that the same can be said of us. You might think that God would fill his church with Supermans and Batmans, but if we're being honest, we look around and find a lot more Clark Kents and Bruce Waynes. You might look, think to yourself and look at yourself and evaluate yourself and think, I'm just, I'm just a simple person. I'm just a student or I'm just a stay-at-home mom or I'm just a teacher. Or I'm just a nurse. I'm just a regular Joe working a regular nine-to-five. And God says, you're just what I need. You might not be from the ruling elite or high class or whatever the background might be that the world would choose, but God's greatest plan came through two beams of wood. And if that's the case, then he can certainly work mighty plans through us. You see, if God can use the cross, he can use you too. Verse 27 says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And when you look at the pages of Scripture, isn't that what God has always done? I mean, throughout the pages of the Bible, again and again, God is always working with these unlikely prospects, the people that the world of the world would pick last. You know, I think of Abraham. 
You know, when God promised to bring about a nation of descendants that would bless the world, that he would make them as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the shore, you would think that he would start with like some newlywed Catholic rabbits or something. Like that would be God's plan to populate the world. But instead, he picks a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old wife, long past their childbearing years. I mean, think about it. God picks the only couple who would be at Walmart buying both Pampers and Depends at the same time. Like, that's God's plan here. And yet, through Abraham, God would bring about that promise. You know, I think about David, this little boy that we've just studied all summer that would go out and fight this Philistine. I mean, not very impressive. If David was a candy bar, he would have been fun-sized here. I mean, even his own king doesn't believe in him. He says, you're not able to go out and fight against this Philistine. You're, you're only a boy, and he's been a warrior since his youth. But David shows us, through God, that giant faith is greater than giant stature. I mean, even Paul himself. One ancient writer describes him this way. We actually have a description of Paul's appearance. It says, a man of little stature... Thin-haired upon the head, crooked in the legs, with eyebrows, eyebrows joining, and a nose somewhat hooked. It says he's short, he's balding, he's big nose, he's bull-legged, and he has a unibrow. I mean, he's not in the running for sexiest man of the year here. But yet he established half of the churches in Asia on these missionary journeys. And he brought the gospel to more Gentiles than any other apostle. And God uses the unlikeliest of people to accomplish his plans. And in the same way that God used and has worked throughout history, he's still working today through us. It's not from the world's most beautiful people, not from the lower class, not from the highest of classes, but from the lower classes, the nobodies, that God chooses who for the most part make up his people. And some of you are here this morning and you might not feel, you know, very significant or important, or, or worthy, and what I want you to know this morning is that you're not, <laughs> and I'm not, but God doesn't need significant, and important, and worthy. He needs humble, moldable servants. You see, if God picked the best, if he picked the cream of the crop, then people might mistake who's really at work, but God picks the lowly and the humble, so that no one can boast, except for by boasting in God's power. By using the weak, God eliminates any grounds for bragging and forces us to rely solely on Him. And so what I want you to think about this, this week and my prayer for this morning and really throughout this whole series is that we would take time to be confronted by the cross because the cross is confrontational. It confronts us with an understanding of what true power really is. It confronts us with an unreasonable God who pursues us unreasonably. It confronts us in the midst of our sin and our messiness and our imperfection and our weakness, and it tells us, in spite of all of it, that God would still choose to use us for His glory. Because of the cross, God can turn, his, can turn our worst into His best. And because of the cross, messy as we may be, we know that He loves us. And he saves us, and he can still use us for his glory. Let's pray that he would do that now. Father, we come before you this morning. And thankfully, I look at our church and, and see that we don't have a lot of these problems that the church in Corinth has. But still, we are messy people. 
and we are imperfect people, and we don't have to dive deep below the surface to see the, the sin and the messiness in our lives that could only be taken care of through the cross. And so God, first and foremost, we thank you that this plan of salvation that you had from the foundations of the world included something so foolish that the world will look at it as absurd. But we look at it as our hope, our life. God, I pray that as we go throughout this week, we would be reflected and confronted by the cross and that we would, in seeing the cross, understand how you work and how you can work through people like us. God, it's not our desire to be messy and imperfect, but in the midst of that, we know that you, you still have plans and purposes for us. And that as we pursue Jesus closer and closer and begin to look more like him, that you can use people even as everyday, ordinary as us to have kingdom impacts that echo throughout eternity. So God, I pray that we would be confronted with the cross and what Jesus has done for us by spilling his blood and the hope that we have that that was not the end, but that he was raised to new life and gives us the hope of eternal life as well. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. Please use us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.